The most effective way I've seen at like forming an opinion is going about it your own way, coming to your own conclusion and, and doing the research and talking to the folks you need to talk to. The key to like instilling that and making that law is the ability to communicate it quickly. If you can't communicate an opinion in like 30 seconds or less, like people are going to poke holes in it and doubt you. But if you can just walk into a room and confidently be like, no, we're going with honeycomb for observability. There's no argument here and here's why. That gets you 60% of the way there most of the time in my experience. Hi, I'm Liz Fong-Jones. I'm Charity Majors. And I'm Jessica Kerr. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OlliCast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OlliCast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups bring their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OlliCast. That's at O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. So some of my favorite questions to ask folks, whenever I start having like conversations around running large enterprise platforms, specifically around Kubernetes, I just ask them what their opinions are. And I, I think that there's a lot of folks in the world who love getting asked that question. And I think there's a lot of folks in the world who will be kind of be like, hey, uh, maybe you can help me out here a little bit, or maybe you can make a suggestion or a professional recommendation for me. And really, that gives me more of an indicator of who I'm dealing with and whether or not Cube is right for them or not more than anything else. If If I don't hear something along the lines of like, we have a detailed process that we have internally on how we form technical opinions uh, and how we make decisions specifically around any topic in Cube. doesn't matter whether it's logging or observability or pipelines or security or how I build my app, how I run my systems, how I manage my infrastructure, whatever. If they don't have a good answer to one of those with a form opinion and feel confident that they've been able to form that opinion and actually instill it, there's other conversations we need to be having at this point. The whole point of Cube is to be flexible. And if somebody can't form an opinion and actually implement something and, and feel good about it, then Cube is, is likely the wrong piece of technology for them. So it kind of relates to the idea of shadow IT, right? That if you don't have a process for standardization, people are going to come up with their own mechanisms for, for developing code that are not necessarily in conformance. Exactly, right? Like it's, it's, there, there's always going to be some void in Kubernetes. There's going to be some nebulous, ambiguous sort of shape that, that somebody needs to go and, and satisfy with some concrete implementation. And if we're not speaking about those pragmatically and objectively and talking about the different options we have and the trade-offs with those options, like Cube is, is, is not going to be checking the boxes that you're looking for. If you're, if you want like a WordPress style experience where like you, you turn it on and it yells at you until your MySQL is configured the right way, Cube is not the tool for you. And, and that's like, I love Kubernetes. I've built my career around Kubernetes. It's a fantastic tool. However, it, just because it's great doesn't mean it's always right for the task at hand. So if, if you have a question and you think maybe the answer is Kubernetes, you better be prepared for a lot more questions. I think so. I look at Kubernetes like I look at it like a, a mesh or a glue. It's like a, a binding substrate that holds things together. <laughs> Kubernetes is never the answer. It is like the vehicle to get something together. <laughs> I just pictured a kid with a hot glue gun. Yeah. Now I have a hot glue gun. I can fix it. Exactly. So now would be a good time for you to uh, introduce yourself. <laughs> so, hey, what's up, everyone? Uh, my name is Chris Nova. I 
I'm a programmer. I'm an engineer. I'm an architect. I um, I do a lot of things. I've written a couple books. I've worked at a few companies. I do have a good way of forming technical opinions. And um, yeah, I'm just here to try to make the world better and try to help folks uh, create platforms that will actually be effective at making their uh, their problems go away. So I love what you said about kind of forming a process for forming technical opinions. What does that tend to look like, right? Like what does a functional process for engineers to come to a consensus on things given that we're like cats, you know, it's hard to herd us into one place and get us all moving in the same direction. Honestly, like I, I think the meta discussion here is, is, is like most of the time, I don't really even care what the process is as much as I care that there is one. And honestly, I don't even care what the opinion is as much as I care that somebody holds it and sustains it over time. And so I think, you know, everybody's going to have their own personal process for how they go and they, they develop an opinion. I, I think for me, most of it has, has always just been like starting with a good problem and then starting to look at the different trade-offs of, of how things may or may not make sense. And then once, once you, you do come to some conclusion, like the ability to communicate it quickly and, and latch onto it and hold onto it and like not, not, you know, move it around and, and make it, so that folks are downing it, I think it's important for me. So you mentioned kind of working at a variety of different scales throughout your career. Kind of how does those things change? Certainly I've experienced this as Honeycomb has grown from an engineering team of 10 to an engineering team of 50, right? Like the patterns you use are different because at a small company, you know, yes, we can all talk to each other and kind of agree in a single meeting, but that's less possible when you have 50 engineers or 100 engineers or 1,000 engineers. So... I, there, there's a couple of schools of thought here, and and I really I look at it as like there's like two main ways of doing it. There's like this like loose coalition of design by committee, collaborative something or other, where there's kind of this like lazy consensus as like a, a way to move forward. And if you look at Kubernetes, like how the open source project operates, that's the name of the game, right? Like if you want to get a decision made or, or an opinion instilled or get like some concrete path forward, usually that's going to look like putting something out there and then when enough people neglect to tell you no, that's your sign to go ahead and, and move forward. I think that, you know, the trade-off there is time. I think really the the most effective way I've seen at like forming an opinion is going in about it your own way, coming to your own conclusion and, and doing the research and talking to the folks you need to talk to. In my opinion, the, the, the key to like instilling that and making that law is the ability to communicate it quickly. If you can't communicate an opinion in like 30 seconds or less, like people are going to poke holes in it and doubt you. But if you can just walk into a room and confidently be like, no, we're going with honeycomb for observability. There's no argument here and here's why. And boom, and we're done. And that's that's it. Like that, that gets you 60% of the way there most of the time in my experience. I think it's really interesting that on one hand, you're saying like it's important to be opinionated. And yet the frameworks I work on, like Kubernetes, like OpenTelemetry, are just so unopinionated on purpose because they have to be able to comply with whatever people's visions are. I, I think so. I, th I think like there's there's totally an economic thing at play here too. So like if you look at how Kubernetes came to be, it's like this cloud abstraction that was supposed to work across all the clouds. And it immediately went to the Linux Foundation and then there was a subsidiary called the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Their whole thing, like the whole reason that whole 501c6 exists is because they want to in like instill vendor neutrality, which means... No opinions. We, we don't say Google is better than Amazon, or we don't say Amazon is better than Microsoft. We say we're neutral. 
And we like very decisively don't have an opinion on which one we go with. And our technology embraces this, this methodology and embraces this sort of neutrality at day one. So when you have this like primordial glue of Kubernetes middleware that is just like like what you were saying, hot gluing everything together, there's not really going to be any sort of concrete, here's what my opinion is and what you get out of the box. It's going to be very loosely coupled and loosely opinionated on day one. And that's kind of like the whole value add. So if you don't have a need for it with a, a really firm set of like philosophy and opinion behind how you want to go run it, you're just going to be dealing with this unopinionated glue the entire time. Like this whole tension between, you know, <laughs> between expertise and in openness and, uh, you know, and opinionatedness. Um, this is why I, I always get so irritated whenever anyone gives advice, just like, here's how you should do it without giving the context in which those decisions were being made, because there is no one way to do it. It is always dependent on the problem, the people, their expertise, the, the rate of growth, you know, there is no answer for how to make technical or engineering decisions that isn't contingent on so many different things. This is why judgment matters. Yeah. Also why consultants always tell you it depends because it actually does really depend. It does. No, but I like I like this point that Jessitron just made. Otel is unopinionated about the back end and to achieve that, it's very opinionated about format. Hmm. Right, it's one of those things where we had to make sure that kind of we can supply you with all of the bells and whistles. The back end can choose to drop them. Uh, that's on your back end, but kind of in order to support the maximum amount of telemetry, you know, we, we had to say, like, you know, yes, you are going to have to be able to support multiple attributes. And in fact, you know, up to, up to hundreds or thousands of attributes, right? Like that this is just something that we're taking for granted rather than, you know, rather than saying we're locking you into the lowest common denominator, right? Like we're providing you with the maximum flexibility. And then here are some best practices on how to do it. But I think that gets to kind of the importance of best practices and examples, right? Like, as you were saying just now, Nova, right? Like, you know, you have this pile of hot glue, right? Like, you, you kind of have to show people what can be done with it in order to convince them there's value, there's something there, right? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think that, you know, like, like Charity was saying, the the ability to come in and, and, and inform an opinion based off of what what it is you're seeing, the context at hand, the the constraints at play, and 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 actually make that make sense and, and have that be outcome driven. I, I think that you know there's there's an art to that. It, it takes time, it takes thought, it takes understanding, empathy. It's it's like a whole process. I'm exhausted after I go through that process, right? That's partly why it's so incredibly refreshing and interesting and fun whenever a rule of thumb does show up. That you, you're like, yes, I can tell people this is a rule of thumb that you, you should follow this unless you have a reason to break this. Like, choose boring technology. I think that was so brilliant because it is it should be the default choice, right? You have a limited number of innovation tokens. You can't spend many of them or you'll doom your business, Right. So how are you going to spend them wisely? And then how are you going to rely on, you know, the most boring software possible for most of it? I think that's something that's advice you can give pretty much everyone. And that's why, like 10 years later, I'm still like mentioning this at least once a week. Right. Yeah. I did want to go back to one of the, the points that you just made, Nova, which is you talk about kind of outcome driven. What is kind of what does outcome driven mean most typically, right? Like, you know, some people prioritize things like cloud cost spend, other people prioritize, you know, oh, we must be multi-cloud, right? Like, you know, what are kind of some of the dimensions that people tend to care about the most often when they're evaluating 
what should we be basing our platform on? What should we be kind of optimizing for? I, I think one of the things I see a lot and where I see a lot of folks get in the weeds is, is optimizing for the wrong things. Or maybe a better way of saying it is, is optimizing for the problems that they see every day. So like as an architect, one of the things I like have to remind myself is my opinion doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what I want to do. It matters what, what I, how I relate our technology to the business and the needs of the business and how I can solve whatever it is the business is dealing with. And, you know, right now I'm working at Twilio and we have our own corporate goals. And like, there's a lot of outcomes there that, that like are important to the company and I do my best to prioritize them. And I I see a lot of engineers go and say, we're going to optimize on our ability to manufacture clusters. Or we're going to go optimize on our ability to have high cardinal logs across the entire stack. Or you know, insert your flavor of technology that, that is very important to them today. And while I'm not necessarily arguing with any of that, I, I do think that like there it takes a special attention to detail to be able to say, okay, we're going to build this and we're also going to get the cost savings we're looking for. Or we're also going to set ourselves up for success with upgrading our infrastructure or like migrating from this legacy system to this new technology while also addressing compliance along the way or like whatever, right? This gets back to, I don't know if you've read the book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, Chris, like Jess and Liz and I all have. (laughs) It's something I'm a little bit religious about right now because it's strategy is so simple and yet people like fuck it up all the time by assuming that strategy means goals or or wants or or numbers when in fact strategy is simply making it's 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 about you know making a a judgment call about how you want to grow the business right here here is the plan here here is how we want to succeed and then coming up with a limited number of like actionable items that will get you there right so so like to your point right your goal as an architect is to make the business succeed. And as a technical architect, your way of getting there is to break it down into, okay, which technical things do we, do we prioritize in order to get us there? And and how, how do they roll up to the bottom line? You can't just go, I want to roll out structured logs because somebody on the Twitter says it's better. It's no, we have decided that as it's a prior, the the way that we succeed um, as a business rolls down to these technical objection objectives, and we can't achieve them unless we have the ability to do high cardinality dimensional analysis. And therefore, it's going in our list of priorities, you know, below, you know, cutting costs, but above, say, moving to Kubernetes or, or something like that, right? But it always has to be justified and resourced. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I always say that, you know, when you are facing not being able to deploy, you know, at least once a week at minimum, right, like, that should be your number one priority is reducing cycle time first, using whatever technology you have to hand that's going to get you there fastest. And then we can think about things like, you know, adding in finer grained observability, because no observability is going to really help you if you are stuck gated on being able to release any changes to fix the issues that you find with observability. What are some of the things that people stumble over the most when they're doing this, right? Like we talked about, you know, poor scope, poor definition, right? So let's assume that we kind of have an idea of what we want to do. What do people then tend to uh, tend to mess up or not get right? I think two, th- two things I would tell myself if I was to go rebuild a platform or if I was to go sit down to somebody who's about to go start building a platform. Number one would be start small would be the first thing I would say. And I think the second thing that I would say would be embrace turning things on. What does that mean? So like one of the, and and this is, this is more of a reflection of my style, I think, but uh, one of my, my problems is I'm a perfectionist. 
I had this very flawed belief for many years of my career that I would be able to build perfect infrastructure, that I would be able to go and actually build like the perfect Kubernetes cluster and then manufacture a million of them at scale and, and make each one of them identical time and time again. And, and I think I can get close. And, you know, I, I tried really hard for, for many years to like write the software to actually make this happen. I do think, though, that from a business perspective, it's, it's more organic than that. There's there's a lot of value in just turning on systems with like some good base core principles, like you said, charity. You know, like like keep it simple, right? Just keep it simple and make it like give me ten best security practices and we'll start there, right? Like just just get us sixty, seventy, eighty percent of the way there and turn it on, and then we'll let the the problems come. And like it's not really about uh, building the perfect infrastructure on day one. It's about not letting the debt pile up and those fires get out of hand, like. Yeah. That's one of the things I would love to go and redo is just how did you how did you phrase that again? Just turn things on? Yeah, just just start small and and embrace turning things on. I love that. At, at Honeycomb, I think that what Christine and I did was very similar. It was like we would say to each other, everything is an experiment. You know, and that's one of our company values now, but it started with us just because she's a perfectionist. I am not, but like we kept getting blocked with just like, well, what if this? What if that? And we we're just like, you know what? No decision is permanent. Everything is temporary. What's important is, is that we make a decision, decision, take a step and start going. And we don't stop because you die if you stop in the water. That's one of the things I say all the, I don't say die if you stop in the water, but one of the things I say all the time is like some decision is better than no decision. Some opinion is better than no opinion. I don't care. I don't care what, what we pick. What I care is that we pick something and that we, we can identify quickly if it's wrong and that if it's wrong, that it doesn't completely foil our entire quarterly plans or whatever that a, a mistake becomes something that's very trivial that's that's actually more important to me than than making it right on the day one. Oh yeah and observability supports that of by making it visible what's going on yeah what does and kubernetes does this also support like being able to turn things on freely because you can also turn them off Oh, I'll have to reserve my opinions on yeah. how Kube turns things on and off later. Okay. But I think, um, you know, clusters, like we, we have a part of Kubernetes called SIG Cluster Lifecycle. And the whole point of this group was to like be like, you turn a cluster on, you manage it over time, and you ultimately turn it off one day. And this whole, we call them SIGs in Kube, but it was like this whole group of folks, and that was their whole job. Cluster Lifecycle, you know, beginning, middle, and end of, of a cluster and I think that what we realized quickly was like, it wasn't necessarily about, the problem wasn't turning cube on, which don't, don't get me wrong, that, that can be an, its own pain in the ass. But like getting a cluster online is actually the easy part of the journey. It's keeping it online and keeping it healthy and keeping it upgraded and not getting completely buried in drift and technical debt. That's the hard part, in my opinion, in my experience in operating cube at scale. Yeah. I think the the other thing they really loved was the idea that you have to get people using your platform to get the operational experience with it in order to know how to further develop it, right? Like I've seen too many people do these, uh, you know, massive lift and shift migrations or these kind of massive migrations that are, we're going to develop the future platform with the best of everything and no one's using it yet because it's not ready yet for three years. And by the time it's ready for any traffic, the best has already moved on. Yeah, let's start small and embrace turning things on. I'll say that a hundred times a day. I love that. 
I often uh, I talk with my my partner about this a lot. She, so she she comes from pager duty. So she's like very much in like the like how do we keep systems online from like an operations perspective mentality. But we've we've toyed with this like thought experiment of like the the two ends of the scale. If we had a scale and we had a left side and a right side, and like the left side was like perfect pristine mechanical systems that we manufactured perfect like wrapped in plastic, sealed, labeled, ready to go as mechanical as they could be. And the other end of the scale is just complete chaos total bash scripty like just turn it on and we don't know who has the keys or where root the root password is or it's just complete total disarray and if you were to turn both of these systems on and apply observability to either end of the scale would you be okay like would you still be able to operate both of these systems like independently of each other if you just had a good way of managing it and like observing it and i'm a firm believer that like it doesn't matter how completely organic and chaotic your system is if you can see it you can respond to it and you can actually control it totally so maybe you don't have to know how you'll turn things off if you see it you have options right so turning our attention now to kind of that intersection between uh platforms and observability where do people start realizing that they need observability, right? Like observability may not necessarily be people's first priority when they're building out a platform because they're f- first thinking about how do I even make the software run? How do I even get the deploy processes working? Kind of what indicates to people that they've maybe outgrown logging, for instance? Outgrown logging? I, I hope I never outgrow logging, honestly. I, I, really? I, I love looking at logs. I'll, I'll look at logs till the day I die. I hope I do. Fine looking at logs, though. You mean like line by line, one by one, machine by machine, container by container? I mean, I, I think there's like there's a big difference between like trying to go dig and like you know correlate problems in a huge fleet of infrastructure logs versus like actually like sitting in front of a single system and watching the system via its its log output. When I say look at logs, I mean like I just want to go look at a single system and see how that one system behaves versus trying to connect systems together. Oh yeah, that makes that makes total sense, right? Like if you can identify local behavior, it's best to not need to look at the whole system together, right? Like totally. Yeah, so it's kind of that minimum viable thing where yeah, I, I I'd agree with you, right? Like I think um gosh, this is the first time I ever appeared on Ollicast as a guest. Um where Charity and I went back and forth about kind of operational logs and how kind of a transient buffer that's not necessarily centrally indexed can get you a fair bit of the way and that people overcomplicate it when they then try to centrally index all the logs together for all of the systems. Yeah. Yeah. I think that like my, I now have this like knee jerk response to the word logs, which is probably not helpful or fair. And it's mostly, it's a, it's a reaction to people who mean logs to be, what they mean is unstructured strings that they're just spewing out haphazardly everywhere. And I'm so over those. I think that those only belong in your development environment. I think that once you're operating anything at scale, you have to have structure, you have to be able to, you know, because most problems you're only going to see when, when you're taking, you know, a broader look at things, you're looking for patterns. Like once you, what you, you deep dive into a single machine, once you've identified the problem or once you've found an example of it, and that's when you go to it for more detail, but like the, the finding of problems needs, needs a, a different lens. I think. I, I couldn't agree enough. Um, I think one of the things that like I've seen a lot is is like work in this constant state of like we're we're never going to be on the platform. We're always going to have kind of one foot in, in the door, and there's always going to be a latest and greatest that's going to be in the future. And we're always going to have something right in the middle, and there's always going to be the the folks lagging behind. Right. And I think that like st- I, structured logging is something that like I'm looking at today, and you know I would love to be able to say 
plumb all your logs through this Go library and start instrumenting your apps and, and go get very like intimate with like how you frame your data so we can go query it later. And I, I think what I found to be the most effective conversational tool as an architect is to say like, I don't care what you do. However, if you structure your logs, we're going to have a much better relationship. Yeah. And I think there's a ton of incentive into saying like you you are empowered to go and, and manage your logs however you want. If you're just going to give me a string of data when your shit breaks, you're going to be dealing with strings of data and you may not realize the impact and the consequences of that today, but that's on you. And I've noticed really quickly that all of a sudden JSON blobs started showing up in our, our logging system. <laughs> wow. I love that. I just wrote that down. I'm totally going to tweet that quote out. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah. Cause, cause when you, when you dictate, when you're like, do this, do that, you know, they're like, well, fuck you. But if you're like, you can do what you want, but here's how to help me help you. I think you, you just put, you put everything in a much better light. Right. And yeah, and we, I still see logs showing up and, and like, like I wouldn't be surprised if there's like some XML somewhere in there, right? Like there's, I just don't know what I'm going to see. And, and, you know, like well, not everything needs to be done right. All, all like you, you get like 80% of the benefit from like 20% of the shit. Right. And like, whenever I'm talking to people about how to roll out observability or structured logs or whatever, it's never start at the top and work, start at A and work your way to Z. Like nobody's going to get past like F or, or G, right? Like, but it's like, use it like, use it like, like a, like a headlamp, right? Where are the problems in your system? We'll go instrument them first as you're trying to debug them. Don't sit there like scrolling past, you know, individual machines, instrument as you're going and that will help you debug and you will end up instrumenting and, and like having more visibility into all of the hotspots of your system and then do the rest like as it comes up. You get paged about something, cool, just go instrument first as you're debugging it and that becomes, like after you've done it two or three times, it becomes a faster and easier way to debug and it leaves a much cleaner system behind for everyone who comes after you to try to debug it later. Yeah, totally agree. And then it goes to the idea of, you know, our systems living and breathing things that we can interact with and change. And this goes to, you know, Jess's uh, discussion of somathacy, right? Like, you know, we're not stuck with the system in a fixed state, kind of, you know, hammering it on it as if it's a black box. Yeah. Yeah. There is no fixed state, no matter how much you'd like for there to be. So you were around kind of for some of the earlier days of, of Kubernetes and kind of how the project has really, really grown. And... I'm always eager to learn from the experiences of people who have been through that stage of growth and open source because like one of the conversations we were having on the day that we've recorded this this uh, episode uh, was at the Open Telemetry Governance Committee uh, where we were talking about the challenge of how do we get people to spend their time maintaining the kind of uh, machinery rather than just building out the newest, shiniest, hottest uh, signal types inside of open telemetry. So kind of what advice would you give me as a open telemetry maintainer, um, as a uh, Kubernetes maintainer person? Probably the same advice I give a platform engineer, start small. Um, I think in open source that that usually comes in the form of of like, how do you how do you get things done and how do you get things accomplished as the project grows? And I think that as the project grows, like history starts to shift, you know, even myself, like, you know, I started a little bit as like, oh, I'm going to work in the infrastructure side of Cube. And then all of a sudden I've, you know, folks started reaching out to me about security. And it's like, well, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I did look at that early on and it, as it turns out that like now I'm one of the, the, you know, knowledge experts in this area. And I'm like, I just read a few Google docs, but I happened to read them at the right time when these systems were being designed. And now all of a sudden I'm an, I'm an expert in this area. And I think that like Cube has gotten 
I, I, I would say like it's borderline out of control in, in the amount of sprawl that, that we see as at the project level. And it's, it's got all of the same problems that any like 2022 economic dip corporation that you see out there as the stock market's going crazy and there's a ton of uncertainty in the world, people change jobs. People all of a sudden move out of engineering and move into management and they stop contributing. And these small things start to kind of fall through the gaps and these big, big efforts where there's, you know, hundreds of people and there's this big design by committee and we have to go through this formal process, like all of a sudden, like you're actually much more effective with a group of three or four people who all think and feel and want the same thing and can like operate as a unit and then grow that unit than you are to try to like tackle this whole out of control monster of like a portion of Kubernetes that you see today. Mm. Yeah, I think definitely that pushing back on increasing scope is something that we've taken to heart, right? Like we are in the process of saying no potentially to kind of a, a major addition to the project, which we know that we don't have bandwidth for for the moment. I also love the other thing that you said kind of about incremental steps, right? Like we need to put together like a wish list of kind of these are the areas where we think people can contribute. These are the areas that people can take load off of the existing maintainers. But yeah, I, I, I hear you right on that kind of sprawling thing where there's, you know, at the moment, probably only half a dozen people in the world who kind of fit all of open telemetry in their head, right? Like we cannot operate by consensus of those people alone. Like there has to be delegation. There has to be kind of trust in a subset of the people to make the right decisions about things. It's really similar to platform, right? Like you, you have these large platform teams and like, like, I mean, one of the, one of the first questions I'll ask anybody when they're talking platform is like, who operates the stack? Yeah. Like, and like, this is like a fundamental question. And like, this is, this is a great way to see who I'm talking to. It's like looking in somebody's refrigerator. You learn so much about them in like 20 seconds. Oh my God. So true. But like, it's like, yeah, well, like what's like here, Charity, what's your opinion? Do you think engineers should operate their, their own infrastructure? Or do you think there should be a centralized infrastructure team? Well, yes. And <laughs> I mean, I think engineers should be responsible for the code that they write and birth out into the world, full stop. And smaller teams or some environments that have a very thin layer of infrastructure, then that means that they're operating their own infrastructure. But I think that, you know, what we're seeing emerge in the, in the market is the existence of platform teams that kind of sit between, you know, you can't expect every engineer to know everything, right? You don't, you don't expect front-end engineers to necessarily understand how to scale up Kate's clusters or how to, you know, do stuff with the database. Like, I get that. And, and so I think that this is the, the platform team is the point of elasticity there, right? Where it helps mm-hmm. you scale up. Up. It becomes that like fulcrum point that that makes lots of you know infrastructure palatable and tractable by lots of different kinds of engineers by by making you know repeatable patterns by making you know, reusable code by make, by making templates you know by making so you don't have to understand here's here are all the observability tools that we use or something no you you, you self serve you're like here's the recipe here's the, here's how I make it monitorable here's how I you know here's how I here's how I plug it into you know here's where I make a dashboard whatever right and so the job of the platform team is to is to kind of like um, help scale the rest of the company so that I, I think that it's a mistake to say that they should all own their own infrastructure but they should all own their own code right and the question of how much that infrastructure does or not consist of is up to is up to up for grabs awesome couldn't have said it better myself completely agree but yeah i think to your point liz right like dealing with projects like open telemetry like same same exact pattern in my opinion right like you have a large group of folks you have folks on the end and it's like do we completely delegate all responsibility of this one subsystem to this whole team and have them operate it entirely and it's like well wait a minute 
Now they're going to invent a code of conduct for like the specific corner of the project. And now they're going to go and re-implement how they make decisions. And now they're going to go like, you know, implement a new mailing list. And, and then it's like, well, I'm now I'm just learning this whole other project just to go familiarize myself with like how we do tracing or, you know, whatever. Yep. But I've already seen this dynamic happening, right? Like the open telemetry collector is its own entire beast, right? That's kind of almost disjoint in some ways from the per language SDKs, right? The per language SDKs share a lot more in common because they're trying to implement the same spec. Whereas the collector is kind of this independently running binary, which has its own considerations and kind of its own development practices, but also like, you know, how can we learn from each other? How can we kind of have the right sized components without creating silos. Yeah, I, I love that kind of thought process that you mentioned of, you know, open source projects are kind of microcosms of what a uh, of what, what a company might look like, except for we're not paid by the same employer. Yeah, exactly. It's it's just large groups of people, right? Let's say this, like, this is, this is age-old stuff here. We have tribalism. We have, like, people who group together. There's, it's just, this is just how people sort themselves. Yep, yep. When software becomes an identity, um, that's something I feel like you have to shed, like, if you want to become post-senior as an engineer, you have to shed, shed that very personal identification that you have. Like, I am a chef engineer, you know, or I am an engineer who does this language. It, it always, like, bums me out when I see people say that they're a JavaScript engineer or a Golang engineer. I'm like, are you a software engineer who writes Golang or are you a Golang engineer? Because those are very different things. Yeah, it's it's a big journey, right? Like, I just went through this whole, like, exercise over the past year of, like, like, how important it is to form, I'm, I'm like obsessed with opinions right now, but like how important it is to form an opinion. And, and one of the things that I've like, as I've been mentoring more principal engineers into the space, it's like, I have to sit folks down and be like, your opinion is not the company's opinion, yep. right? Like you might be a Go engineer. You might be like Mr. JavaScript or Mr. Rust or whatever, but like that is not necessarily what the corporation needs. And I hate to break it to you, but like you kind of need to go be the voice of this now. Nova, thank you so much for coming on here. I miss you so much. I hope we can get together in the next year because I miss, I miss violently arguing and agreeing with you on everything. It's just it's fantastic. Yeah, this was a ton of fun. Thank you for your opinions on opinion. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Thanks for having me. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.